0: And welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host. And the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us thinking, get us talking, get us imagining, get us, get us going on a, a new way of thinking, and maybe inspired and challenged to do just a bit more because we've made the connection. My co-host, Rick Bernardo, has been wonderful in um, inviting truly amazing guests for our shows the last few months, and I want to thank you, Rick.
1: You're welcome. Yeah. It's it's an honor.
0: Rick has a a marvelous background in both health and the arts, and uh, I share that passion for health and the arts. And Rick has worked similarly uh, with anti-tobacco programs way back when, when I was working with the American Cancer Society. Also has worked with a lot of theaters and uh, is a comedian and a musician and just an interesting guy all the way around. And uh, and knows uh-huh. interesting people.
1: That's that's a great life, isn't it? It <laughs> sounds good. I want to be me.
0: <laughs> well, I'm particularly interested today in your guest Um and I'll let you make the introduction, but it, it's a new way of thinking, I think, about caregivers and arts, and I'll, I'll make that the tease, how, how arts can impact not only the patient and the healing process, but how can the dance uh, between all of that.
1: Work. Yeah. So tell me, it's a it's a rich set of connections to make. And let's say a little bit about Stuart Pimsler, who's our guest. Uh, first of all, let's say he's the author of the Choreography of Care. It's a book that we'll be talking about. Uh, but to give some background, he's a choreographer. He's a director, writer, performer, founder, and artistic director uh, of the Stuart Pimsler Dance and Theater. It's an internationally recognized performance company founded in 1979, co-directed with Suzanne Costello since 1984. The company's been presented throughout the U.S. and internationally through many countries. Uh, They engage with a diverse array of populations like students, caregivers, audiences, and community members, and what we're here today to talk about... um, is the Choreography of Care book. Um, that is a book that chronicles how the work that he does with Suzanne Costello continues to respond to the needs of caregivers in the profe- in professional settings and in homes. And that's become um, a paramount topic if you've ever been on any side of caregiving professionally I- as a patient or a nurse, or a doctor, or social workers, uh, it's uh, it's a rich topic now. Now, the way we know each other is Stuart and I went to the same college uh, for different programs, but we uh, met each other some years ago. I think it was 2016. The president had a reception. The president, not of the country, but <laughs> of the college. Um, and uh, we were there, and we were like, you're from here? I didn't know, and we didn't know we went to the same place. So that's the long story short. We'll say a little bit more about Connecticut College maybe later. But say hi, Stuart.
2: Hi, Stuart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say hi, Rick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Stuart, it's it's lovely to have you here. And I'm very impressed with your new book, uh, The Choreography of Care, Engaging Caregivers
2: in Creative Expression.
0: And it's just out. People can buy it?
2: Yes, they can buy it through our website www.choreographyofcare.com. And I want to say just right away that it's not only for professional caregivers, but for anybody finding themselves in the position of taking care of a loved one or anybody else that they've been so moved to take care of. And it provides a lot of strategies, techniques for self-care so that any caregiver doesn't face burnout without some... Activities that might support them,
0: and caregiving, uh, and looking at our nurses uh, and their challenges that they've been facing. They've um, they went into their strike for their three days, and they're burned out. Yeah, they they, and, they want support. Yep,
2: and and that's something that we have found uh, throughout our work over over thirty years now. That burnout and um, just being. So stressed is a, a constant uh, workplace dilemma.
0: We're hearing more and I think understanding more deeply because of the pandemic um, and what stress that put on caregivers. Um, according to a study conducted by Mental Health America at the height of the pandemic between June and September 2020, 93% of healthcare workers were experiencing stress, 86% reported um, experiencing anxiety. Seventy six were just plain exhausted, and seventy five percent of healthcare workers said that they were overwhelmed. So, stress is there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and and it was interesting. I mean, coincidental in that I was greenlighted by the publisher for my book a week after the pandemic broke. Oh my gosh! And so. uh, The pandemic uh, was just a a prompting of updating what I – some of the things that I had already discovered. And it was fascinating to see all of a sudden, as the pandemic continued, to see the ways in which communities were now appreciating, newly appreciating their caregivers, whether it was with posters or billboards, thanking caregivers for taking a chance – and I, it, ironically, I, this week, um, there was a traveling nurse stayed in, in my home. Uh, she was on her way to a new position from Ohio to Oregon. And she started her career when the pandemic began. Oh, my goodness. And the stories that she unfolded about her role and the risks that she was willing to take when none of us knew anything about the way that the... COVID operated mm-hmm. um, was incredible, you know, heroic or sheroic.
0: And very often families couldn't be
2: in touch with those patients. It
0: was the nurses and the doctors that were the humanity. Yeah. And providing yeah. that sense of, you know, we're here for you.
2: And speaking about family, if we can take a small detour. Absolutely. Great. Um, I wanted to just share with you and our listeners about how uh, my family got me somewhat interested. In fact, one of the chapters in my book is called, He Always Wanted to Be a Doctor. Which is, of course, misleading because I really didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> but your mother wanted but to my be. my mother did. Yes, my my mother, my yeah, beloved mother. Uh-huh. Um, I was uh, first generation uh, to go to college. My grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Now the the much uh, hated uh, part of the world. Uh, but my grandparents came from Russia, and. Uh, They were uh, highly uneducated formally, uh, although quite smart human beings. And my parents were similarly unformally educated, but a lot of street smarts. And as the first generation to go to college and being a nice Jewish boy growing up in the 50s, my mother was absolutely determined uh, that I was going to be a doctor. In fact, uh, can I share an excerpt? Please, Um, please do. This is... uh, From my book, Uh, the book starts off (laughs) memoirish to give, you know, readers uh, an appetite, hopefully, for how I got involved in this field of arts and medicine. And um, I talk very uh, um, about my mother. Um, Her name was Cecile. Cecile celebrated me daily as her superstar. She lovingly reminisced about my first wellness visits as an infant. Recalling my determination to grab hold of the pedi- pediatrician's stethoscope as an early sign. He always wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> my memory is that Cecile always wanted me to be a doctor. From the moment that I spat out my first sound, my mother told me I was brilliant. Look at him, you're one of a kind. Uh, She also assured me I had a face that could stop strangers. She was right about my appearance. It would take years before my considerable Ashkenazic nose morphed from a tragic early childhood deformity to a distinctive character trait. From birth, my Jewish mother loved every flawed part of me. Even when she took me to shopping for clothes, she would ask With me standing, holding her hand, where's the husky? He's a husky. Look at him. Are you blind? He's a husky. So, um, you know, from early on, uh, I was kind of on that track. You you were were put on that track. But, you know,
0: when I looked at that, I also had a part of me that, that felt she had a vision for you in medicine. And perhaps she saw it as a doctor. But you did fulfill a role in medicine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I I think that her um, death, which is really, for me, was the, the jettisoning moment that got me into the whole field of arts and medicine. She died in a car crash when I was 15. And, you know, back then the kinds of strategies that we have today for dealing with death and grieving and mourning were really not present. You were told to suck it up and move forward. And and that's what I did. And I think I stuffed away a lot of my anger and grief and hurt until I had the opportunity to mourn, which is what the arts gave me and continue to give me. And I think that Her uh, loss, uh, uh, you know, was uh, eventually became a gift of how I got involved with this work.
0: And interesting, it was a work that you had dedicated to her that you were doing in Florida, that you were asked to think about something more.
2: Yeah. So the work um, that. Again, I think became the bridge for us into the uh, healthcare world. It was very much a lamentation for my mother. It was called "Swimming to Cecile." It was a trio for three women, and there's a, a a speaker who's at a microphone, and in the dark, we hear her voice, and she says, "These are some of the lines from the piece: Where are you?" I don't know where you're hiding. I just want to talk to you for a little while, a short meeting. And those were very much the kinds of dreams that I had mm. right after my mother died of this hope that I would see her and be able to say goodbye because when she died, um we were not al- I was not allowed into the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was alive for 24 hours from the time I arrived, but I, I never really had that moment. And as some of the things that I've learned through my own healing, when you suffer a loss, uh, depending on the age, it affects your brain differently. And they're finding now with new studies that PTSD occurs very often when there's a, a loss that one is not not that we're ever prepared for loss, but that you don't have the opportunity to ready yourself for. So.
0: It's interesting because as we look at uh, relationships in terms of a patient healing or a caregiver being in a moment of uh, understanding that y- you don't need to stuff that, you know, you, you can open up. It can open doors that some people feel uncomfortable in a opening. And art as a discipline allows us to look at it differently and move differently and think differently. And I'm I'm fascinated by the interplay and I'm I'm also fascinated by you using the term choreography uh, because it's a dance between, it's a dance of, it's not just one, it's the whole environment that, that becomes the dance. And I need to take a break <laughs> because I, for AM nine fifty, the progressive voice of Minnesota, um, they particularly enjoy when I allow the sponsors and our advertisers to share their wonderful products. So I'm going to need to take a break. But I want um, I want the audience to be thinking about um, an own experience that they've had in terms of uh, their own perhaps trauma or doctor that they had or a nurse that was particularly there for them and then what the nurse and the doctor may need as well and in this dance. So we're going to be exploring dance and a little background on some more research as well. So stay with us. It's going to be a wonderful show. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and I have my co-host, Rick Bernardo, who also has a great background in health and the arts. And that's particularly important because today we are talking about The Choreography of Care.
1: That's a book. Yes. By, by Stuart Pimsler, whom we have with us today. He's a director, writer, performer, and founder uh, and artistic co-director of the Stuart Pimsler Dance Theater and he and I both uh, had attended Connecticut College that's how we know each other and um, by the way Martha Myers who um, oversaw the American Dance Festival or I don't know if she she she, uh, at that was one of my first memories as a child of hearing about Connecticut College because that was always there and you knew her and it said it's something in the book about you maybe she, she also lost a parent as a child, was it?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I feel like that was one of our bonding moments of having early uh, loss of a parent. And I was very fortunate to be able to study with Martha Meyer. She was my mentor and actually had an opportunity to edit a book about her life, which I love the title of that. Don't Don't sit down. Please don't sit down. um, I was at her, uh, just to digress for a second, I was at her retirement uh, celebration at Connecticut College. And, of course, the college gave her a a rocking chair as uh, a going-away gift.
1: (laughs) Oh, they have those. Yes, they Well, uh, they (laughs) did
2: then. And Martha got the chair. She was on stage with it. And um, that's where the title of the book came. Because she looked at the chair and she said, I hope, honey, that I never have to use <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and okay. that was Martha. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, as we talk about, you know, people that have made a difference in our lives and, and you think back on um, the relationships and, and what becomes important, uh, I remember my brother, uh, my mother was also very similar in wanting my brother to be a doctor. <laughs> I think she. he had a similar path of... Uh, of encouragement uh, that it was just sort of a fait accompli that he was going to be a doctor. And uh, I remember as a little girl uh, a doctor coming to our house, a house call, and um, thinking that that's that's what my brother was going to do. And
2: similarly, I remember that as well. In fact, in my book, I I talk about uh, our beloved family physician, Dr. Blyweiss, who I I think to this day – well. I think my mother had kind of a secret crush on him. She loved – I think you, you might remember Ben Casey yeah. and uh, my mother loved those medical shows. Yes. and that Dr. Just, Kildare. Dr. Kildare. <laughs> yeah. And it just fueled her, her ongoing hope that uh. I, too, would join the ranks of, of these kinds of hulky, handsome – And noble. And noble doctors, (laughs) yes. And so uh, in the book where I'm talking about, again, how my mother always hoped that I would be a doctor, um, I talk about uh, the old days, the good old days where the doctors would come to our house, and I talk about Dr. Blyweiss coming one day after my mother uh, discerned that I had a very bad rash that she didn't know how to cure. And so I I write, uh, Dr. Blyweiss arrived promptly, toning his handsome black leather bag and amiable demeanor. Upon greeting the doctor, Cecile appeared noticeably distraught, fearing I had the worst and I have inherited my mother's paranoia as I approach near terror when my children are ill. My grandmother had just arrived to support my mom's efforts in combating my affliction with a foolproof remedy from the old country a hearty dose of herring in wine sauce and a toasted bialy and i'll just digress for those listeners who don't know what a bialy is a bialy is like a bagel except the hole doesn't go all the way through and at the center are these wonderful cooked onions. Mm. And with a little cream cheese, it's divine. <laughs> but let me get back to my quote. My grandmother, had, so she had this uh, uh, dose of uh, herring and toast of bialy, And surprised by the doctor's arrival, my grandmother placed the unfinished delicacy under my bed. While certain of herring's curative power... She was uncertain if our doctor would approve of this old-world cure. My grandmother was an immigrant from the old country. Upon completing his thorough bedside examination, Dr. Blyweiss assured all of us that my measles would soon pass. Before departing, the good doctor washed his hands at our kitchen sink, rolled down his sleeves, and asked my mother and grandmother if he might have a little taste of the family medicine,
0: oh. <laughs> and you know, there's there's so much richness to the idea of family medicine, yes,
2: right? Yes, you
0: know that what 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 is medicinal for us? Yes, what gives us
2: comfort? <laughs> yes, and what
0: gives us that connection? Yeah,
2: and, and you know, I think that that then harks to some of the research that I uh, uncovered when I was writing my book about what. People, researchers are finding now in terms of what are some of the aspects of caregivers that support the healing of their patients. And yes, uh, the science is, of course, incredibly important. Predominant. It, yes, yeah, very important. Very important. Yes. No question. But what they're finding, and this is not just qualitative research, but quantitative research, is that when patients believe that the caregiver is really engaged with them, the patient, and care, and care, and how they show that, that there's actually greater success of curing or at least making the patient feel better. Quality of life. Quality of life. And how does that happen? I mean, how does a doctor show a patient, or do they want to show a patient that they truly really uh, hear them, that they dare to use a much overused word these days, empathize with them.
0: It's funny. I just talked with um, someone who is going to do some work around my house, and he was talking about doctors last night. I thought it was interesting, and that he had a doctor for over 50 years and the doctor finally retired and he said, I just want to have some patients because over these last 50 years, I never really got to know
1: anyone.
2: Mm.
0: And it, it just made him sad because he, he really went into medicine thinking he was going to get to know his patients and be support to them. But the constraints of the system that you know reduce the amount of time, that create frustrations and that – you see the same people over and over again for similar things, and you, the people that you really you know, want to be able to help, you, you don't get to see enough. And yeah,
2: it, it, and and Laurie, one of the books that has been a constant inspiration that I use often in the work that my partner, Suzanne Costello, and I do is a uh, a book called Intoxicated by My Illness, written by a former New York Times book critic, Anatole Broyard. And he wrote the book when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, which was terminal for him. And he talked about his desire, what he had hoped for now that he was uh, approaching the end of his life, about the relationship that he wanted with his doctor or he had hoped for. And he wanted the doctor literally to ask not just about his prostate, but he wanted the doctor to ask about what motivated him, what gave him inspiration in his life, what what did he love, what were his passions. He wanted the doctor to ask him about his writing. And I think that there's something about Asking beyond what it is that the doctor initially receives their patient for. Yes, we come in with this illness. I have we these present, symptoms. We present to right. that. Subject, but yeah. who, the, we're all beyond the the charts, yeah. right? We all have our own stories to tell. And it's those stories that I think some of us want our healers to dig into to get to know us better.
1: And they have those too. There's, so there's there's both sides to that where that waiting to happen. Uh, not that there's always time, but but that's part of the system. You know? Yes. Anyway, yes. Uh, thank you, Stuart. And
0: and the techniques. I, I, I know I'm running a little over, but I'm still interested. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to run a little over for the time. Um, you have some specific things that that can show people care. And and it may be simple gestures, it may be a variety of I'd love to have you share that and then we will go to break, I promise.
2: So thanks for asking about that. Yeah, some of, you know, and again I think some of these things are commonsensical because they all have to do with behavior. Mm-hmm. But For doctors who, and I think a lot of this is is not to be blamed on the caregivers. Caregivers, my experience has been that they come into our sessions, caring for the caregiver work and other programs that we do, and they talk about first inspirations of why they wanted to become caregivers. And it's because, obviously, they wanted to take care of people. But the system... In terms of the stress, in terms of the workload, in terms of the patients, prevent some of that, and so they're in. They want to meet the demands of the patients, but sometimes what happens along the way is they forget that the tone of their voice, "How are you today, Laurie?" affects the way in which they relate to somebody and the way that a patient receives them so it's it's tone of voice it's what they're doing with their body how far away they are from a patient how close they're willing to get to the patient what is the demeanor their demeanor when they come to a patient do they make a decision to connect physically connect with that patient how do they do that and so it's these array, this array of behavioral, the behavioral aspects.
0: And some of this we are taught in theater and in dance. Yes. You know, it, it, it becomes uh, a way of thinking that you don't realize that others have not had that kind of training to understand how you project on stage it can be something that you can project on a one-on-one. Yep. And that even if you don't completely feel all of those things, some of the behavior can still – be read as connecting so it doesn't have to be hard it doesn't yeah. have to you don't have to put on an
2: act and, and it's interesting just as you're doing now you're gesturing yes. to me with yes. your hands and i know very well and, no one can and, see that and Yes, and, but, <laughs> but yes and i know that you right now are really into what we're talking yes. about yes. if you had your hands in a kimbo position yep. across yeah. your chest, blocking your heart. And it was a show-me sort of style. I, I would have a, a different it's sense a of reaction. you. Yeah, yeah, I feel like, hmm, Laurie's not liking what I'm saying here. We're not connecting. We're the, not these, connecting. These habits,
1: uh, I know you, you're all saying, they can be trained into us, or they're just very often natural, but they can also, in a, any family or system, get trained out of us uh, a little bit, so...
0: Well, I will come to a close, but I just want to. This is something that, that I've read uh, of your work. It's the e- movement exercises and the literary, visual, vocal, and theatrical techniques that we use to invite caregivers to consider and remember their original impulses for becoming healers, their everyday demeanors and emotional life in relating to their patients, and the importance of caring for themselves. The, caring for themselves. And their careers. So, with that, I need to have us take another break. Um, but when we come back, I want you to share stories—stories stories about some of the performance work, the symposium, all the good stuff that you've been doing. Um, and we appreciate how you're sharing um, from your heart and uh, the stories that that have made a difference. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host, and the goal of our show is to talk about ideas that matter. And we are talking about a really important subject today, art and healing and caregivers. And we have um, a wonderful author that is joining us today, Stuart Pinsler, who has uh, written an amazing book uh, looking at the choreography of care. You can go to his website, which is a terrific uh, website. It's the com. That's the best way to get the book. Uh, and I have Rick Bernardo as my co host, who has invited Stuart to be part of our show today. And appreciate, um, Rick, you supporting our show today and being my co host and inviting great people.
1: You're welcome. Yep. I did,
0: get, <laughs> I did get a message back from my brother. I had, had, did a shout out about my brother being uh, also encouraged by uh, our mother uh, to become a doctor. And he wrote back, although mom wanted to be a doctor and I did have pressure from that direction. The real reason I went to medical school was the Vietnam War. Draft number 49 ensured that I would go to war, if not medical school. However, the reason I stayed being a physician and chose work in the hospital care was the combination of a deep need of the patients and families and my drive to intensity and excitement at work. Interesting how it all works together. But he posed a question. Um, It's interesting that doctors want to get to know them. Why do you think that it occurs more with doctors than perhaps, you know, your accountants, you go in, you know, your... uh, Someone who is going to fix your car, they fix your car. But we have a deeper need to to connect with our healers.
2: Um, Well, I think that there's an implicit intimacy that occurs in the doctor-patient relationship. I mean, if you think about the risks and the vulnerability of a patient – Any of us who have gone to see somebody, you go in to see a doctor, not because uh, for the most part you want to talk about politics or um, some other activity. You go in because you think that there's something wrong, right? And you go in and the power dynamic is skewed so much in favor of the healer cuz you're they heal and you're vulnerable yeah. and the healer has the answers or at least you hope they have the answers and the the doctor in that power dynamic if they recognize that this patient is as vulnerable as they, we know they are, then how do you comfort them? How do you engage them? How and, do you really and, show them that you care about them? And with them?
0: that many that they're dealing with that have that intensity... You have to imagine that it's draining.
2: It's draining. that,
0: And the act of even trying to project empathy yes. is challenging.
2: But what's fascinating to me about having done this work with caregivers all over the world for over 30 years is that, uh, if I could read another excerpt from yep. my book, yeah. this was an experience I had during a workshop that we did with young medical uh, osteopathic students. And this was in 2013. It was a workshop that we called Transforming the Doctor-Patient Relationship. And uh, it was during a break of one of these workshops where a student came up to me, and I talk about this student. He was exuberant in expressing his appreciation for the work we had covered in the first day. Like many of his colleagues, he spoke about the extreme rigor of his studies, primarily focused on memorization and hard science. He felt renewed and enriched to have focused inwards and remembered why he had become a doctor. And with the utmost earnestness of self-discovery, he continued, and this is what he said, These exercises you have engaged us in have made me realize how relational the practice of medicine is. I never really knew that before today. And while I was delighted that he was getting so much from the workshop, I was also horrified mm-hmm. to imagine that this was this idea of there being a relationship with your patient and what that implies in terms of you, your behavioral expectations was not present for the student. It was and, not there.
0: And you've talked about that with medical schools, that... that- How much do they or do they not encourage relational?
2: Well, and it's, yes, and it's become an issue. Again, research is showing, and these are scientific studies, that uh, the compassion fatigue that occurs not just as you practice but in medical school there's a steady decline of empathy from the time a student enters their studies until they finish. And it's interesting in terms of what doctors or healers suffer. And this is not just, you know, the book is not just for professional caregivers. It's for individuals who experience are experiencing caring for a loved one now. it's It's the same kind of what actually uh, Mother Teresa referred to as compassion fatigue, and she was a visionary in terms of understanding this because she told her staff that after a certain amount of time dealing with patients, she demanded that they take a year off to revitalize. So she was way ahead of the curve in terms of understanding what the work of caregiving does, its stress, and how it can burden Caregivers,
0: And it comes down to really active love. I mean, that, that's what she was all about. Yes. It, it, how can you, and as my brother has shared with me, loyalty, patience, and discipline. Yep. And it really is. And do we acknowledge our caregivers as giving love?
2: Well, it, you know, and that goes to the whole sensibility of what do we want our caregivers? What kind of relationship does the public want with their caregivers? Would, a, would we be okay if a doctor came in teary-eyed uh, and said, you know, I, 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 I'm so sorry for what you're going through? Or do we want still this notion of this stoic individual? The Dr. Kildare. Right, <laughs> yes, who has yeah. all the answers. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think the public you know, we have a responsibility in engaging in our own care, Mm -hmm. which will, I think, enhance and improve the relationship we have with our doctors. And so that's really at the heart of a lot of our work our work really uh, falls into two specific categories there's the one of healthcare uh, the healthcare provider taking care of themselves how do how do after now that we've been talking so much about stress on healthcare providers well how do they do that how do they restore themselves so some of our techniques address that and some of our techniques address empathic capacity how do healthcare providers what is their current empathic capacity, and how much of that are they willing to show and share, and how important is that for the healthcare provider? So that's kind of the way that our work, you know unfolds. And for those viewers who are still cratch- scratching their head wondering, well, what does this work look like? You know, uh-huh. this guy is a dancer and choreographer. Uh-huh. What does he do? Come in and teach him ballet? No. <laughs> no, we don't. Wh- what we do is very uh, accessible kinds of creative engagements. It could be just walking around the room. But it's w- walking with a heightened sensibility of who's in the space with them and how they're communicating themselves non Verbally to their colleagues, because that awareness, we believe, spills over to how they present themselves nonverbally to their patients. Do they come in with their hands across their chest and say, good morning, it's nice to meet you, Uh, and how are you today? As opposed to, you know, their arms are away and they close in and they say, so how are you today? It's a pleasure to meet you. And all of those little things. And and just in that moment, as you were sharing with me,
0: I mean, I did feel more connected and felt like you were seeing me in a different way.
1: Yeah. There is a uh, a phrase that Arthur Miller would use, the the fish is in the water and the water is in the fish. And I'm hearing and seeing that the environment in which physicians and patients work and live, it can either shrink – or it can be clear, or it could be life-giving, or it could be uh, expanded. And the work you're doing is, is, is enriching and expanding. The water is what I'm hearing.
2: Well, thank you for that. And yes, I, I love that metaphor.
1: Um, and with that, choreographyofcare.com is a yes, website to go to. And Stuart. The- It has not only
0: about the book, but it has great ideas in there as well. Get to know Stuart has a nice about uh, section to learn about Stuart and and the work that he's done.
1: And we'll be back, right? Aren't we? Right.
0: Just shortly. We'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host. And Rick Bernardo. That's me. Is my co-host and I haven't let him talk much. I'm sorry. I just have gotten so I much need into permission. the conversation. That's okay.
1: <laughs> I'm just here,
0: and you, uh, and, and you brought a wonderful guest.
1: I did. Uh, Stuart Kinsler. I, I invited him. Yeah, I, he he is. Uh, a man of many roles, a writer, a performer, founder, and artistic director of Stuart That's Pimsler. That's P I M S L E R. We should spell that just in case people don't know how we're saying that. Stuart Pimsler, dance also, and it, theater.
0: It's also important because his website. Yes. So tell me his Stuart, website.
1: Stuart S T U A R T, Stuart and Pimsler, P I M is in Mary, S L E R.com. StuartPimsler.com. That's the dance and theater uh, website.
0: And I want to have us mention that. Because the book is wonderful, and that, of course, is the choreographer of car- choreography of care, mm. but you have services, and you have – if you're interested in, in what we've been talking about, it's great to read the book, but you may also, hey, how can I make this happen? So,
2: Yeah, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Mm. So my partner, Suzanne Costello – actually, I, sh- I have to give uh, kudos to Suzanne because she was the one who came up with the title for my book. Awesome. Um, We uh, continue to work um, around the country and uh, abroad uh, offering our programs, which uh, have many different kind of uh, caps. There's uh, a lot of work that we do with students, which is looking at, as I mentioned in the previous segment, transforming the doctor-patient relationship, looking at their students' empathic capacities as they get ready to enter the field. And then we have programs for seasoned Care, uh, healthcare providers are caring for the caregiver workshops, which we've done locally at um, HCMC, at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, at a variety of different hospitals. And right now, um, we have a grant from, thank you, the Minnesota State Arts Board, that we're doing uh, at libraries throughout the greater metro. In fact, I did one this week, which was very, very moving. And that's for, it was attended by home healthcare providers all of them dealing with uh, parents and grandparents who are going through challenges around memory loss. Mm. And the same struggles they have with their one loved one are the kinds of things that we hear carry over with professional health care providers.
0: I also know you've done work with the Guthrie that linked up with the Mayo Clinic. And one of the programs, I'm not sure if you worked on this one, was working with – uh, doctors and how they take uh, their intakes and how the story, how how to create a, a better way of having the story be told.
2: Yeah, we uh, actually never did that work with the Guthrie, but mm-hmm. yes, a lot of our work deals with how do you gather information and, and what kind of information is that beyond, again, the chart. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting uh, in terms of the subject matter, in terms of maybe where we're headed in terms of the arts and wellness. And the field, you know, that I, I, this field that we're talking about, arts and health, from the time that I began in this field 30 years ago, has gone through an incredible transformation, um, including its nomenclature. It, you know, it, it used to be arts and medicine, and that didn't seem to be a right, fit and then it became arts and health and and now one of the terms that is being seems to be enjoyed is arts for wellness and I think that reflects the ways in which the public's attitude about their own care has changed as well rather than thinking about something as being curative once you have a disease we're looking at the arts as being another – it's like a vitamin. It's a preventative. <laughs> and wouldn't it be incredible if some future day you went to your doctor and said, you know, I have a sinus infection or I have this rash. And the doctor prescribed the, the, the medicine that's being u- used at the time. But as part of that medicine, they also suggested that you read a poem uh, by – whomever, Uh uh, to distract you, to inspire you, uh, to read a poem by um, either a contemporary poet or some beloved uh, old-school poet. Mm -hmm.
0: And you have to imagine in some ways going forward and going back. I mean, I have to believe when doctors came into your home, they might have not only eaten good food that that you shared, perhaps they did share a story. Yes. they did share a sentence or two or a poetry uh, whatnot and and maybe we're going forward and also pulling back from a time when we connected differently.
2: And I think so much of our work is storytelling yeah. and yeah it's so important to listen to people's stories
0: and we're so glad that you shared your stories and we're so glad that.
2: I want to
1: thank the Connecticut College Magazine for bringing Stuart's work to my attention again and because uh, there's a lot of listeners from there from there going on Emotional, intellectual, and physical worlds are combining with our work here.
0: And that's it for uh, Connections Radio Show.